0: For months now, the UN has been warning of a looming human catastrophe in Yemen that could potentially kill hundreds of thousands of people. United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Stephen O'Brien told the UN Security Council recently that the war, together with the cholera outbreak and widespread hunger in Yemen, could lead to the collapse of the country. The brutal US-funded Saudi-led military attack on Yemen has claimed more than 10,000 lives and has left the country's infrastructure in ruins. Hussein Muhsen, a Yemeni-American and a founding member of the Bay Area-based Yemen Relief Project, recently made a trip to Yemen.
1: I think prior to going to Yemen, I uh, was confused about how there was this extreme uh, hunger or starvation that was occurring there, and and people were talking about upwards of 14 million people suffering from food insecurities. And I just didn't see how that that was happening in a country where I felt like there was the ability for resources to get there, for food to be distributed. But as soon as I got to Yemen, I started to understand the bigger picture, that it wasn't just the lack of food, but it was a complete breakdown of, of the system. There wasn't access to consistent electricity or the medicine wasn't readily available to people. It was a complete collapse of of the country's infrastructure, and that was where I think the the problem started. As far as um, the idea of some areas of Yemen having uh, suffered more than others, that was something that existed before the war, but now we see it throughout Yemen.
2: When you said throughout Yemen, where did you exactly go? Has any part of the country been spared?
1: No, I didn't see that. I saw that throughout Yemen. I, I landed into Aden, and that city has suffered a lot of damage,
2: which for, is in the southern part of Yemen. Yes,
1: in the southern part, I saw a lot of destruction and poverty was was clearly, you know, something that you saw just walking out from your hotel from the day I got there, and then traveling to the north. You know, you saw it in every village that we went through, and, and you saw that clearly in Sana'a when, I, when we got there.
2: Sana'a is the capital, and most of the population is concentrated in Sana'a. So what was the situation like in Sana'a?
1: The first thing that I noticed right when I, we drove into Sana'a was the trash, the, there was trash everywhere. I've, I've never seen anything like this in my life, where piles and piles of, of trash, I mean, to simply put it. Nobody has been doing waste management you know to make it they haven't been taking the, the trash out the government hasn't been paying people to remove the trash, basically, so it was piled up power would go on and off throughout the day, but you wouldn't get power more than maybe an hour an hour and a half, maybe a few hours at night, but it was definitely sporadic.
2: Tell us more about how how do these cities function, how do people get around from one place to another? Government employees haven't been paid for months, healthcare professionals and doctors haven't been paid for months and months, as you said. Civil servants haven't been paid and garbage is piling up. Mm -hmm. So how are schools functioning? Just give us a sense of what everyday life is like for
1: people. Like you said, people haven't been paid for months and months. I think at the time that I was there, it was eight months that people haven't been paid. But people were still going to work. They were still serving their community in whatever way they could, even though they weren't receiving the paycheck or money in return. They were hoping that hopefully things will change and one day they will get paid. Doctors were still going to the hospital. Nurses were still going to the hospital. Schools were still operating in Sana'a, at least that I saw. And teachers were still teaching, even though they weren't being paid. The system, as far as the general need for the basic essentials were still being served even though um, nobody was getting paid at that time.
2: Walid, I want to turn to you and talk to you about the outbreak of cholera in Yemen. The worsening cholera outbreak is an especially clear and grim example of the consequences of this devastating war and military aggression in Yemen. Tell us why this has turned into an epidemic and how far cholera uh, has spread in Yemen. According to World Health Organization, the outbreak of cholera in Yemen is the worst in the world. Over 218,000 cases have been reported so far. More than 1,400 people have died. And every day some 5,000 people are diagnosed with cholera and half of them are children.
3: Well, you know, Yemen overall declared the state of emergency of cholera on April 27, 2017. And actually, Hussein was present there when it was declared as an emergency. Cholera outbreaks happen around the world, and they tend to occur in times of war, in times where people are displaced. Um, as Hussein already pointed out, when the public health infrastructure, when the sanitation systems are broken down, cholera is easily contaminating the waters and it's something that we take for granted in industrialized countries or countries in the west we don't have to think about our water supply uh, when we turn on the faucets but in yemen it's an everyday question every minute question um, as families are cooking or feeding their children um, drinking water and as you said, there are different statistics out there reported by the WHO, the World Health Organization, and others. Over 1,100, probably 1,400 now Yemeni yeah, men, women, and children have died from this preventable disease. You know, cholera is a bacteria that contaminates water sources, and it's preventable. And people are dying from it, which is a very unfortunate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, in the U.S., if someone has symptoms of diarrhea and dehydration, they can easily rehydrate themselves. But that's not the case for many Yemenis in Yemen right now.
2: Cholera is spread, as you said, through dirty water and in january of last year saudi jets blew up the desalination plant serving the city of uh, taiz forcing right. people to turn to dirtier water for drinking and washing was taiz ground zero for for the epidemic
3: yeah. right so taiz i think remains to be one of the central cities where um, supposedly, there are you know rebels on the ground fighting against uh, the Saudi government, mm-hmm. um, Houthis, and so forth. Um, and uh, much of the conflict, at least uh, when it came to overthrowing the um, Yemeni government, um, began there. And you know we understand, you know it's a it's a very strategic move for for foreign governments to say that we need to destroy our water supply. And and I c- I can easily imagine I haven't read the. Statistics. I can easily imagine that one of the main sources um, began in Taz because of the destruction of uh, desalination uh, uh, factories, Um, and that's just a very inhumane act. And it's very unfortunate that you know innocent men, women, and children are stuck um, in the crosshairs of. You know, foreign government fighting in a land that is not theirs, and so um it's a very unfortunate case, as Hussein pointed out, and as our organization points out um You know, we are uh, a non-political group that are seeking, you know, the help of the world to try to address the situation. Ultimately, though, um, we will need a stable government in Yemen to um, provide the public services that people need to get electricity, clean, running water, and so forth.
2: And the war needs to stop. Yes.
3: In other words, we are just a Band-Aid for the problem. Yeah. very little we can we can do as a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not superheroes. We are, are normal citizens who see people in need. But as you state correctly, we need a Yemeni government that is stable and that is recognized um, by the UN. And ultimately, we need peace. Um, and that's uh, that's a long-term goal. Um, right now, there are just so it's a it's a multifactorial problem mm-hmm. in Yemen. And it's going to take time before it gets resolved. But people need to recognize that our, that there are innocent lives being um, caught in the crosshairs, and uh, and um, the U, you know the U N, the U S, the Saudi government need to be pressured to have um, these conversations to try to de-escalate the problems. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and stop the war.
3: War is not good for. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for for many yeah. public health and and, and just for uh, you know living day to day and yes
2: and that takes me to the project that you're all involved in and I want to bring you in Safa into the conversation you are a founding member of Yemen Relief Project you're also have an ongoing campaign called Project Heal Yemen, which is raising money to buy medicine for cholera patients. Tell us about Yemen Relief Project. When did you start it and what you have been able to accomplish so far?
4: Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that despite Yemen having deep-rooted like economical and political issues, there are people who are hungry and are in hospitals dying that can't wait for those long-term solutions and so what Yemen Relief Project is aiming to do is to provide that humanitarian aid that people urgently need and as Walid said to put the band-aid on the this issue Um, and so we started Yemen Relief Project in 2016 Mm. during that time the main issue was hunger so people were trying to give money to their families back in Yemen. And there we were noticing that there was a lot of people who maybe didn't have connections outside of Yemen, people who didn't have families abroad sending in money. So we came together, a group of Yemeni-Americans, to try to give back to our community in, in any way we can. And so that started off with a very modest canned food drive that got people mm. excited.
2: And this campaign started in the Bay Area.
4: It was, yeah. Mm. And so... High school students were involved, college students, just community members. Eventually, it led to a campaign that had like an online social media platform. And so we were able to raise money to buy MANA uh, nutritional packets. What is that? It's called uh, Ready to Use Therapeutic Foods. And so those are given to children to, it's kind of like a peanut butter that has a lot of the nutrients that children who are suffering with uh, severe acute malnutrition would need to uh, regain their health. And so we sent that on a ship over to the port of Hidata. And that campaign was pretty successful, although we had some speed bumps on the way just because of the war and Mm. you know that conflict and so do you have to get
2: a permission Saudi Arabia and its allies have imposed a blockade on imports to Yemen both overseas and via air
3: you make an interesting point I mean uh, as Safa mentioned so we raised nearly thirty thousand dollars in our first campaign to purchase these nutritional packets and around August last year we we shipped these nutritional packets and pallets of canned goods from Oakland, California to the port of Hodeida in Yemen and as Safa highlighted you know we we did indeed run into troubles And it's interesting. I mean, with Saudi Arabia's air campaign and blockade, there's a lot of high stakes in the country on the ground. Many Yemenis are very unsettled, and so anything arriving can potentially be a threat to their country, which is understandable, looking from the inside out.
2: What do you mean by a threat to their country?
3: So any shipment that arrives Hmm. to your port, if... um, anyone has any sinister intentions can Mm -hmm. be any kind of shipment can be weapons can be you know trying to arm the the rebels and so forth or trying to arm people on the ground And, and we understand that but it was frustrating for us as a nonprofit sending this shipment even though we sent paperwork official documents from the consulate here in the Bay Area saying that we are an identified organization wanting to do good and wanting to provide donations to Yemeni people starving in this conflict. But as our shipment arrived, there are people at the port who didn't want to release it for for several reasons, and I think one of the main reasons is because they wanted to collect some kind of bribe. Because I would assume
2: that these ships are closely inspected.
3: Right. In an ideal world, yes. I mean, it would be inspected, and people would be fulfilling their duties, but we, we happen to experience you know the latter, that actually we, we faced a lot of difficulty to even get the shipment out of the port which is actually why the main reason why Hussein needed to leave and retrieve it again as an organization we told Hussein you're insane you cannot go into a war torn country and try to retrieve this this shipment but Hussein is a very generous uh, very giving very brave person and he was willing to take that risk in order to get these supplies to to Yemenis in need and, and he did that successfully after trials and tribulations on the ground in Yemen and we fed over 500 children and their families with it. And so it's quite a feat for us and, and we can't thank Hussein enough for doing
0: that. Safal al-Dubaini, Hussein Mohsin, and Dr. Walid Hamoud Ahmed are founding members of the Yemen Relief Project, a grassroots charitable organization working to provide humanitarian relief while improving the overall quality of life of Yemeni people in underserved communities.
2: And for more information on how you can support Yemen Relief Project's work, please visit YemenReliefProject.org. That's YemenReliefProject.org. We'll post this information on our website at Vomina.org.
0: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
2: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.